together, 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 1. Now it came to pass, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziglag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was... And he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said, To the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? And the young man who told him said this, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him these things, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an immigrant, an Amalekite. So David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful. Surpassing the love of women, how the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of warfare perished. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel 1 says, now it came to pass after the death of Saul. After the death of Saul, that's the title of our study tonight, after the death of Saul. You see, the death of Saul was the final scene that you and I looked at together in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 31. 
Well, David and his mighty men were 100 miles away defeating the Amalekites. Saul and the men of Israel were being defeated by the Philistines. And there it was on Mount Gilboa as the Philistines' pursuit became too much for them. Saul and his sons, including Jonathan, which was David's best friend, Saul and his sons, they, they died there on Mount Gilboa. Now, the account in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel details for us exactly what happened as provided for us by the narrator, by the writer here of 1 and 2 Samuel. Saul's sons, if you'll remember, were already dead. He was severely wounded and afraid of being captured and tortured by the Philistines. And so Saul begged his very own armor bearer to come and to take his life. But his armor bearer refused. So it was that 1 Samuel 31 then tells us that Saul fell on his own sword. That is, he died by suicide. After which, his armor bearer then took his life also. And there on Mount Gilboa with David a hundred miles away, nowhere near the events that are taking place here between the children of Israel and the Philistines, here was the tragic and brutal ending of Israel's first king. Now the question may arise to us this evening, why why does all of this matter? What significance do these stories that we're studying in the Old Testament have any, any meaning in my life today? Well, frankly, it all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus and his story. Remember, history, history with emphasis on the his, H-I-S, history is his story. All of these things matter because our knowledge of Jesus' story is what gives us the conviction of who he is and what he has done and how that God fulfilled his plan and purpose through giving us Jesus Christ, the perfect king, the king who rules and reigns today and is coming again to rule and reign on this earth. You see, all of these things are pointing us to the story of Jesus. And so while we may look into this death and this scene and this grief and lamentation and we walk away wondering what in the world does that practically have to do with me it has everything to do with us as we come to know who God is and what he has done and the length that he has traveled in order to fulfill his purposes and promises in our lives and so it is that we continue forward in second Samuel together I've put together just three simple points to identify the events of chapter 1, and here's the first one. Number one, we see a serious miscalculation, a serious miscalculation. Now, it's important to note here that David is not yet aware of Saul's death. All right, we're aware of it. We know about it because we just read it in 1 Samuel chapter 31. But, but in the sequence of time, David is not yet aware of it. He's actually, according to verse 1 here, been in Ziglag. And there it is. He's been fighting his own battle against the Amalekites. Of course, he was aware of the conflict that was taking place, and we discovered that back in chapter 28, 29, 30, toward the end of 1 Samuel. Uh, David is obviously aware of the Philistine attack against Saul and his people, but he didn't yet know the outcome of it. And here he is in Ziglag, waiting, evidently, to hear the news of what has transpired. And verse 2, look at it there with me, says that on the third day, this evidently means three days after uh, the battle that David had won in defeating the Amalekites, on the third day there in Ziglag, behold, it happened, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. So all of a sudden we have this surprising arrival of a man whose appearance signifies one who is mourning. And that is what we get here when we see him coming to David with his clothes torn and dust on his head. These were the 
ceremonial rites that people would go through to display externally the inward grief and sorrow and death that perhaps they were mourning. Of course, all of that, as David perceived it, signaled bad news. When he saw the man coming and the appearance that he was, David had to be thinking to himself, this, this can't be good. This can't be good. So David asked the man a series of questions. We find the first question in verse number 3. The first question he asked is this, where have you come from? Of course, you see it there in your Bibles. The man responds, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Now, the first thing that I wrote down as I'm studying this together is why in the world did he say that he escaped? He could have easily said that I came from the camp of Israel, and we know by the narrator's voice here that he did come from the camp of Israel. But why is it that he told David that he escaped from the camp of Israel? I think the man intentionally uses the word escape, perhaps to make an intimate connection with David. After all, David has repeatedly escaped from Saul over and over again. David is just one place to the next, escaping from Saul, escaping from Saul, escaping from Saul. What was it, in fact, that this man was trying to put himself on David's side of any potential strain that still existed between David and his men and Saul's men? So that's how he begins the the interaction. I have escaped. I have escaped. I've gotten out safely from Saul's camp. Of course, David then follows that up with a second question, verse 4. Well, please tell me, how did the matter go? How did it go? Please, please tell me. You can almost sense the urgency here on David's part. He's not sitting back casually just hoping to catch bits and pieces. No, he's saying, please sit down. Let's let's clean this guy up. Let's get him something to drink. I want you to tell me everything. Tell me everything. Please tell me what's going on there between Saul and Israel and the Philistines. Of course, the man responds in verse 4. He said, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, They're dead also. Now again, we already know this to be true. We know these things to be true because that's exactly what the narrator told us in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. But David is hearing it for the very first time. Saul and Jonathan are dead. Israel has been defeated. But David is no fool. And apparently there's something There's something here about this man that perhaps didn't sit right with David. You ever had that feeling with somebody? Just in your conversations, your interactions, you you may not can put your finger on it quite yet, but just something, something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't sit right. And it seems to me in the follow-up questions that David begins to question this man's Integrity. So David asked a third question. He didn't just take the man's word for it. He follows it up with a third question. Look at it there in verse 5. Well, how do you know, David says, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Now, there's a phrase used in verse 5, and then again in verse 13, that I think, speaks volumes to what the narrator wants us to know. You see the phrase there in verse 5? It says, so David said to the young man, look at the next three words, who told him. All right? You, You see it again in verse 13. So David said to the young man who told him. There's an inference here. He's saying, this is what David said to the man who told him these things. These things, again, the narrator is telling us something important, that these things that are said are what the young man told David. They're not necessarily the things that really happened. 
These are the things that the young man said. So what David is fixing to hear is not what happened, but what this man told him that happened. And here's how the man responds to David's third question. Look at it there in verse 6. As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now, when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered and said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And so I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and had brought them here to my Lord. Again, as I'm studying this, even in my own notes, I write in the, the margin of my notes around this scripture, this is not true, exclamation point. <laughs> this is not true. I mean, there's some truth to it, and it's just enough truth to make it believable. But, but it's not the truth. And evidently this man was in Mount, Mount Gilboa. Evidently he was there in the camp of Israel. Obviously he had to have been in such close proximity that he gets a lot of the details right. He even tells the part where Saul asked for someone else to take his life. Now we know that that happened to the armor bearer. And the armor bearer refused. And then when he refused, he took his own life. So, so this man, yes, he was there. Yes, he's seen the events that have transpired. And perhaps because maybe he's the only one standing, he thinks he can twist the story just a little bit to make him in front of David look like the good guy. At least that's what appears to me. It would appear that this man thinks, he thinks that his report will settle well on David's ears. In fact, the idea that he claims to have provided Saul a dignified death further drives this man to think that David maybe will even promote him in David's new kingdom. After all, he's the first one to acknowledge David as the new king. He brought him the crown, the bracelet. He's fall, fell, fallen on his face before him, prostrate, and he's calling him my Lord. And here he is. He's the one responsible for killing Saul, so he said, He's brought David the crown. He's calling him my Lord. John Calvin said of this man, he was an insincere flatterer. An insincere flatterer. He truly believed that he would benefit by putting himself in this positive light toward David. But as we will continue to see, which is the header of the first point, it was a serious miscalculation. A serious miscalculation. Because David's wisdom had concluded that this man was a fool. That he was not being honest. And that he had no integrity. In fact, we'll see it in the coming weeks when you fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 10. David is rehearsing how that he discovered the news. And here's what David said in chapter 4. Someone told me, of course we know that to be the man that we're reading about here in chapter 1. Someone told me, David said, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought me good news. David was convinced of their death, no doubt. But he wasn't buying this man's story. Now, the next two verses are hard to place in the timeline when we come to verse 11 and 12. Did it happen immediately, or are they connected to the lamentation that we'll look at in verse 17? I only bring that up because sometimes in these Old Testament narratives, you will find that the narrator will bring about an emotion to the forefront of the story just to show us, in this case, the dramatic hit that this kind of news brings about emotions in a person. Though it's possible that these details in verses 11 and 12 didn't happen right there at that moment. It could be tied 
later on. Either way, what we do see here is that it has a profound impact on our understanding of David's heart towards Saul and Jonathan's death. Of course, if what happened in verse 11 and 12, and I'm going to read it in a moment, if what happened in verse 11 and 12 did happen immediately, can you imagine for a moment just how this young man began to feel as he witnessed this right before his very eyes? Well, let me show you what happened in verse 11, and then we'll look at it further. Verse 11 says, Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. It's an expression of true grief. Now, the reason why I say, can you imagine if this happened immediately after the man told him his side of the story, I I, I bet he was surprised, to say the least, to find out that David is not responding to his story the way that he thought David would. You, You would think the man's thinking as he's... Coming up with all of this, again, a serious miscalculation that David's going to be celebrating, that David's going to be excited, that David's going to make him a cabinet member in the kingdom because he's the man who's responsible for taking Saul out. But that's not what happens at all. David's not celebrating. He's mourning. And again, if it did happen immediately, I can just imagine the other man thinking to himself, uh oh. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for this. I didn't expect it to go quite like that. Because here's David mourning for Saul, the one who wanted to kill him. He's mourning for Saul. He's mourning for Jonathan, his best friend. And of course, he's mourning for the people of Israel. More on that in just a moment, but what we see here at the opening of the text, this is a serious miscalculation on this young man's part. All right, write down number two. Because of his serious miscalculation, we find, secondly, a sudden execution. A sudden execution. David continues in his line of questioning the man. He asked him where he was from in verse 13, which he learned in this moment that he was an Amalekite which David had just got finished defeating the Amalekites. So so in David's eyes, nonetheless, here's a man that is an enemy of Israel. Perhaps he's coming in incognito, trying to pervade the people. Who knows what this man is up to? Oh, he finds out he's an Amalekite, and then he asks him in verse 14, look at it, how was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand? To destroy the Lord's anointed. In other words, how dare or how did you dare to do this? How did you dare to do this? This was the Lord's anointed. How in the world did you think it was okay for you to kill the Lord's anointed? You see, though David was the new anointed king of Israel on account of God rejecting Saul... In response to Saul's rebellion and disobedience to the Lord, as long as Saul was alive, David respected the fact that Saul was still the anointed king of Israel. Are you following me? Samuel, in the private ceremony, had anointed David. But David understood that he was not to take that throne for himself. He was to wait until God gave it to him. And so with every moment, every opportunity he had to take Saul out, he chooses not to do it because he didn't want to manipulate it. He wanted to follow God's precise plan. Therefore, over and over again, David absolutely refused even of himself to take the head of the Lord's anointed. This was a big deal to David. And as long as Saul was alive, he respected the fact that the throne belonged to him, that he was still the anointed king of Israel. Again, we've seen it over and over again. David consistently refused to do Saul any harm because of who he was. And who was he? The Lord's anointed. The one chosen to represent him. 
That's what is meant by the phrase, the Lord's anointed, the one chosen to represent him. It was repulsive to David and an assault on God for this man to claim that he killed the one who represents God, the one who is the Lord's anointed. Now, David knew that this man had just claimed to kill him and that by claiming to kill him, he thought that he would gain favor now with David, the new king. But what he had seriously miscalculated was the righteousness of David and the faithfulness of David. So his consequence was sudden and it was severe. Look at it there in verse 15. Then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. He said, well, Pastor David didn't even give him an opportunity to respond. Well, what he had done even didn't merit a response. The facts were clear. He anointed, or excuse me, he claimed that he had done this. David looks deeper and finds out there's a greater problem here. And so verse 15, he tells his man, go and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. And here's what David said to him while this is happening. Your blood is on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. I want you to think about something with me before we move on to this final section. No wrongdoing will ever bring your life a benefit worth having. I want you to think about that for a moment. Because that's what this man seriously miscalculated. A little bit of falsehood. A small lapse in integrity is worth the benefit that will come when David believes this story. But what we are reminded is the great law of reaping and sowing. No wrongdoing will ever bring to your life or mine a benefit worth having. So we have a Serious miscalculation, a severe, sudden execution. And then we come to verse 17 and we find ourselves looking at a sincere lamentation. A sincere lamentation. That brings us back to the earlier verses where David is tearing his clothes and he's weeping and mourning. And then we see it again here in verse number number 17 that he begins to lament. This is where the bulk of what's happening here in chapter 1 gains our attention. Because David is sincerely lamenting Saul's death. And I want you to understand that. Because David's lament was no false humility. He wasn't putting on an outward show while at the same time inwardly rejoicing at Saul's death. He was sincerely grieved. He was genuinely grieved by what had come to pass with Saul and his life. You know, there's a lot to be learned about death and grieving. In fact, what we learn here is that David's lament, and let me define lament for you if it's been a while, lament is simply grief put into words, all right? And grief we often associate with a feeling, how we feel, sorrow, grief. But lament is when that grief is put into words. It's what David is doing here. He is taking the emotions of grief and mourning and sorrow that he is experiencing, and now he is translating that into a full lamentation. We know that it was very personal, but also that it wasn't private. It was personal grief, but it wasn't private grief. It was sad. It was was difficult. But it was something they did corporately together. Look at it there in verse 17. Then David lamented. He, He put his grief into words with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And here's what he said. He told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. So so a couple of things. 
first, what in the world is the book of Jasher? You say, Pastor, that's missing out of my Bible. Well, it's not intended to be a book of the Bible. Church history teaches us that the book of Jasher was an Israelite history book. Something that would just record the various happenings that we don't have in our Bibles today. And so what we have here is the record of a book existing, a history book. And we have an excerpt that we're getting ready to read, an excerpt from that book that David instructed to be included in. So that's what the book of Jasher is. We also see it mentioning, I believe, in the book of Ezra. But I, that, I could be wrong about that. It is mentioned in another Old Testament book, but... Uh, don't take my word for it, which one it is yet. Look it up for yourself, all right? Here's the second thing that I know. Teaching people to lament was a priority for David. The first act of the new king was to teach the people through poetry and song how to grieve the death of others. Now, he didn't go on a campaign march outlining that that would be happen in his first day in office. We often hear those things, right? In my first 30 days, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. My first day in office, I'm going to sign this and this. There's no campaign march by David saying that his first day as king, he's going to teach us all how to cry. But that certainly was his first act. Was a priority. He wanted his people to learn the gift of mourning, grief. Now, I'm not sure we fully grasp the significance of lamenting. How that grief and lament is to be a part of our human experience. We kind of want to rush through the pain. Just, just, just get through this as, as much as I can. That's why we don't want to talk about it. it. hurts too much. We don't share it with others. Let's get, let's get through it as, as quick as we can. At times we can even become impatient with the mourning of others. We say things, at least to ourselves, well, shouldn't she be getting over this by now? I mean, her husband's been gone for X amount of years now. You'd think, you'd think she'd move beyond it. Well, didn't that happen 10, 15, 20 years ago? And she, she's still mourning her child's loss? May God help us as a church family to be patient with the grief and lament that others experience. Grief is deep. And it can be ongoing. There are days when people experience significant grief that they're feeling fine. And then three days later, it is back down in the pits of lament once again. Thankfully, the Bible teaches us through the Psalms and other portions of Scripture, like this one, how to express our grief and how it is that we need to grieve with others. I think that's why we've done an injustice. And when I say we, I'm talking about the modern evangelical church today where the entire worship program is centered around jumping up and down and excitement and, and joy. But then the average person who's hurting and mourning and grieving walks into that environment and they cannot relate. Why is everybody so happy all the time? I'm hurting. I've lost. I'm experiencing pain. We've done an injustice in not teaching the biblical balance of what Christ teaches us to follow in worship. That the majority of the psalms were not psalms of praise. The majority of the psalms are psalms of lament. Songs that they sung grieving loss, mourning sin, sorrowful over life circumstances. And that is to be just as much a part of our worship as it is, oh, happy day. Do we really know how to grieve? 
or are we still of the mind that we just don't want to talk about it? Do we really know how to lament? Or do we feel guilty that the grief is still there? I just noted a couple things just practically from this lament that obviously was important because David said, write it down and teach it. So we, we, we have to look at it and learn from it because he wanted it to be taught to us. And let me give you these things as we kind of close this down tonight. How can we learn from this one lament? And look, this is just one of hundreds of laments in the Bible. I wrote down here, number one, acknowledge the tragedy of death. In our lament, in our grief, we need to acknowledge the tragedy of death, that death is indeed a tragedy. Look at what he says in verse 17. Then David lamented with his lamentation over Saul, over Jonathan, and he told them to teach the children of Judah uh, the son of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher, the beauty of Israel is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. I think this is why we even shy away from in in funerals. I have done so many of them through the years. It it seems like everybody wants to change the terminology of what's actually happened. Well, our brother has moved on. It's true. He's relocated. He's at rest. She's sleeping. All of that is true. But the reality is they have died. They have died. What once was is now no more. That's why it's tragic whether it was someone we lived our entire lives with or a baby in the womb that we never got to meet. It's tragic. And it's painful. It's why we weep. It's why certain things can trigger those emotions of the memories that we once had. It's Christmas, right? And you remember them sitting in the seat or you remember that tradition that they did and it just, it all comes back again, right? It's the grief. It's it's, it's the tragedy of death. It's why we feel lost. It's why mourning swells up inside of us. And it's okay to acknowledge that. Death stinks. It's painful. It hurts. It is a tragedy when we experience. It's not something we need to rush by and put it on the calendar or skip the funeral altogether. No, God calls us to weep and grieve. It's a part of how he's made us. Nicholas Walter Storff, a Yale professor of philosophy and theology, he wrote a book called The Lament for a Son. Lament for a Son. It It articulates the story of his oldest child, whose name was Eric. He died at the age of 25 in a climbing accident. And so his father wrote about it. And and here's a quote from the book. He writes, it is the neverness that is so painful. Now, I don't know if neverness is a word, but it came from a Yale professor, and so we're going to roll with it. He said, it's the neverness that is so painful. The neverness. Never again to be with us. Never to sit with us at the table. Never to travel with us. Never to laugh with us. Never to cry with us. Never to embrace us as he leaves for school. Never to see his brother and sister Mary. All the rest of our lives we must live without him. Only our death can stop the pain of his death. The Bible's unashamed of mourning, church. In fact, it instructs us to mourn. What about the resurrection? We just celebrate the resurrection. Look, we understand the resurrection. Christ has defeated death, but death will ultimately not be destroyed until Christ returns. 
So even as believers, we have to face the reality that death is in store for us unless Christ comes before. Yes, we live in joy, but we also experience grief. And so, brothers and sisters, don't rush your mourning. Do do what David did here. Write down your lament if that's helpful. As I went through my season of grief recently, I I just kept a little journal and I write down these things. And when when I start feeling certain emotions again, I'll go back to that book, which is in my book bag, and it goes with me everywhere I go. And I flip over those pages and I remember those thoughts that I wrote on this day and the verses that helped on that day and the feelings I was feeling that day and the counsel I received on that day and just writing it down, writing my emotions, writing my grief. It it, it helps, it helps in experiencing the process. Write down your lament, sing your lament. Express your lament. The, the, The point here, first of all, we see David acknowledging the tragedy of death. And that will be something that helps us too as we learn to sincerely lament. Acknowledge the tragedy. Don't ignore it. Don't rush through it. Acknowledge it. Here's the second thing. When we come to verse 20 and 21, he tells us clearly that death is not a party to be celebrated. Now, now it's it's funny some of of the requests of some of you have for your funerals when those come, you know. I've, I've, I've had some interesting requests, you know, like what we're going to wear when we all come to the funeral and no, no sad songs, pastor, we want to have, if you've got, if you got to get a clown there, I want a clown there, I want everybody laughing, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But notice what David said about this whole funeral procession. Verse 20, tell it not, tell it not, tell it not in Gath, that's where the Philistines are. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, let the daughters of the uncircumcised uh, arise, O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. It seems as if David is recalling the time in which Goliath was killed. And the parades throughout the streets of all of Israel. Saul is slain his thousands. David is ten thousands. And everybody's rejoicing. He's like, hey, let's not turn this funeral into a party. This is serious. This is, this is tragic. I beg, as you know, who's been so helpful to me. In fact, in just a couple of weeks, I'll be with him for their basis conference at Parkside. Alistair said, in reflecting on grief and lament, he said, if we are tempted to turn the funeral into a party, then we inevitably sidestep or try to sidestep the deep sadness that is a part of loss. I want you to think about that. If we are tempted to turn the funeral into a party, then we inevitably sidestep or try to sidestep the deep sadness that is a part of loss. And that's what David is calling for here. He's calling for a time of silence, a time of reflection, a time of mourning. And then thirdly, I wrote down here as we look at verse 22 that our lament calls us to remember what is lost. To remember what is lost. Again, David is not only doing this personally, but it's not privately either. He's doing this with the whole nation. That's why we have funerals. That's why we come together in these moments to lament what we have lost in those that we love. Several things that are very fascinating, and I just have to mention these. I don't have time to park on them. Verse 22, David remembered Saul and Jonathan's bravery as military warriors. Verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. By the way, another sermon for another time. We're talking about David praising the man who spent the majority of his kingdom trying to kill him. Isn't that amazing? Your enemy, your enemy, and you're now giving the eulogy at the funeral And he's being completely praiseworthy in finding the good in Saul. Wow. 
He remembers Saul not for trying to take his life. He remembers him for the bravery that he fought in battle. David remembered Saul and Jonathan's loyalty to one another. Verse 23, Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Now that does not, that is not inconsistent with the times that Jonathan stood up for David against his own father. But what you have to respect about Jonathan is after all Saul did, after all Saul did to, to, to attempt to execute his son-in-law, David, Jonathan's brother-in-law, Jonathan's best friend, they hear Jonathan, his son, is there dying with him on the battlefield. And David chooses to pick that out. Yes, they had their disagreements, but they were loyal. They were loyal. And then David remembered the good that Saul had done. The good that Saul had done. Look at it, verse 24. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Now, this is not one of those things where he's coming to the funeral and everybody in the room knows this guy was a disaster and so David's going to just kind of, you know, fluff it up a little bit to make sure everything's nice and kind. No, no, no. He's sincerely doing this. For there were moments that Saul did good for Israel. And he acknowledges it. The main lament closes with David expressing his deep love for Jonathan. He was crushed by Jonathan's death. Look at verse 25, how the mighty have fallen. Three times he mentions that phrase, by the way. Again, acknowledging the tragedy of death. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. As we know, Jonathan and David had a deep personal friendship. So deep here that David describes their friendship as being closer in nature than even the relationship that he had with his own wives. Now, liberal-minded people will use this language to push a homosexual relationship between the two. It's absolutely ludicrous to suggest such for several reasons. One, he's writing poetry here. Poetry is intended to invoke the emotion and imagery of the moment. Secondly, the Bible would never commend what it already condemns, okay? The Bible's never inconsistent. So the narrator here would not commend a relationship that the Bible would condemn in other places. And third, this is just a deep friendship built around a faithful covenant to one another in recognitions of God's will and purposes. And I don't have time to rehearse all the covenant that they made. And you could take this two ways, that this, this feeling, was it, was it an imagery? Is it an imagery of our relationship with Christ as David represents the Messiah for us in the Lord Jesus Christ? That our relationship with the Messiah is to be deeper and greater than any relationship we have here on earth, even our own relationship with our spouse? Perhaps that's the imagery that he's trying to display for us. I don't know. One commentator said, well, if you look at his marriage record, he didn't have a good marriage anyway. <laughs> so it's probably easy to identify that his and Jonathan's relationship was, was good because his first wife just kind of abandoned him. And his second wife, well, he, he kind of stole after, after he killed her husband. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's, 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 it's bad all the way around, right? Well, regardless of that, he's simply lamenting the loss, the crush that he has experienced in losing his best friend. Now I'm done. The question is, Pastor, what do you want me to do with this? I want you to cry at my funeral. That's what I want you to do with this. <laughs> you see, that, that's the thing with faithful Bible study. There are some passages of Scripture that doesn't tell us to do anything. Now, we don't like that because we're action-oriented people. It's why we buck the grace of God and often give in to the law of God. 
Because we want you to give us one, two, three, repeat after me, Pastor, this is what i got to do. And if I do these three things, everything's done. But, but the Bible isn't always laid out that way. The Bible's not always telling us to do something. Sometimes it just wants us to gaze into a passage of Scripture and see the greatness of God. Now, with that being said, I do want to leave you with two takeaways. One... The young man who came to David was a fool, okay? And so are we whenever we begin to think that we can be servants of God's King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and advance ourselves with anything other than righteousness. May we be careful through selfish ambition not to put ourselves in places in unrighteous ways. There's a New Testament verse for that. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Nothing. That's what this man was doing. Selfish ambition is what took his own life. All right? So let's learn from that. Here's the second thing and we'll pray. Christians are to be better at joy and better at crying than anybody else in the entire universe. As we experience loss and the tragedy of death, let us grieve and lament, while at the same time looking forward with joy to King Jesus, who is one day coming to wipe away all of our tears and to bring us to a new heaven and a new earth where death will be no more. So cry. Rejoice. Experience that which is a part of our human nature. For all of it falls in line with his greater purposes. Psalm 35. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy does come in the morning. So for those of you who are weeping the loss of someone you've lost recently, or the death of someone Years gone by. Weeping and sorrow and lament and grief may be a regular part of your life today. But fullness of joy is coming. And we look for that in the perfect king. Not David. Certainly not Saul. But in Jesus Christ. Let's stand together for prayer this evening.